next to that. Uh, so this is um, some of this you already have, but I put it on one convenient sheet. Um, here is Steve, everyone. Um, so what we have, what you already have, what we looked at on Wednesday was the long love that in my thought doth harbor. Um, I'm also giving you Surrey's translation of the same poem as well as the Petrarchan um, original. So on, in the top row, rows are horizontal, columns are vertical. It's a game theory thing. Um, in the top row are um, the sonnet by, by Petrarch, um, Wyatt's translation of that sonnet, which is what we looked at, the long love that in my thought doth harbor, and Surrey's translation of the same sonnet. Surrey, by the way, was, um, do people know how he died? executed by Henry VIII um, in a fit of paranoia. Um, although that's there, I'm just being redundant. Um, <laughs> executed by Henry VIII. Um, uh, Anne Boleyn was his cousin, and therefore he was kind of on her side, um, which was the wrong side to be on. Um, and also a, a devotee of Wyatt's, as you saw from his epitaph on Wyatt. Um, he was 30 when he died. When he was executed, um, so he had, you know, by the standards of the day, he had a good long life. Um, Thirty was, um, if you look at records, um, you who are going to graduate at age 22 or so, if you look at records of England at the time and and look at documents and so on, um, 30 and in the same way that we now call people um, in their 50s or 60s or whatever senior citizens. Um, in the lingo of the time, 30 was old age. Um, 30 is when people regarded themselves as being, um, as having hit old age. So, um, go figure. Uh, Alexander the Great was 32 when he died. Um, and yet he was still the great. Um, below that is another sonnet of, um, of yeah. Um, why, yes. <laughs> Um, below that is another sonnet of Petrarch's and one that Suze, who can, um, whose Italian is good, right, wanted to read aloud, said she could read aloud. Um, I tried to shame her into singing, but she wouldn't do it. Um, sorry? When you tap dance. When I tap, I, I will tap dance if you sing and we will, and, and, and it will be, I will be comic relief and <laughs> you will be the... The talent, um, and why it's translation of that sonnet of Petrarch's. So, do you want to read it? Um, do you want to? Would you mind reading both? Uh, no. <laughs> Which one you want? So why don't we? Why don't we start with one forty? So this is one of was it three hundred sixty five poems? I think that uh, one for each day of the year, one if I recall. Day. Sorry. It's a one a day. Yeah, it's a one a day. Um, poems that Petrarch wrote for Laura. Um, and uh, part of the reason that um, Jones, I think the reason that he doesn't have those poems in this edition, but I'm not sure, but I think the reason is that he regards them as translations. On the other hand, he does have Sari's translation of Virgil. So it's not quite the fact that it's translation that can be decisive. Um, but one of the things that I think it's worth talking about 
is what Wyatt thought about translation, why for him translation was um, a way of making things more rather than less intense. For a lot of people, it's, oh, that's just a translation. Um, I want to see an original poem by Wyatt. But for Wyatt, translation um, actually fit perfectly with what he's thinking about in his poetry. And that's something that um, we'll talk about a little bit. But yeah, so why don't, why don't we start with 140? Yeah. Amor che nel pensier mio vive regna, e il suo seggio maggior del mio cor tene. Talora armato nella fronte vene, ivi si loca, e ivi pon sua insegna. Quella camare e soferirne insegna, e vol che il gran desio l'accesa spene, ragion vergogna e reverenza frene di nostro ardir fra se stessa si invegna onde amor paventoso fugge al core lasciando ogni sua impresa e piange e trema ivi s'asconde e non appar più fore che possi o far temendo il mio signore che se non star seco Infine allora estremo, che bel fin fa, chi ben amando more. That was just incredible. I would almost tap dance for that. <laughs> um, but no, it's my only, it's my only lever on you. Um, all right, so probably you'll have to help me out with the Italian, but to translate it as literally as possible. It's love that in, in, in my thought lives and reigns. Um, and his great seat holds in my heart, um, thus armed, um, comes into my forehead. Um, uh, yeah, comes into my forehead. You, all, you already know the, what, what this means figuratively because we did the Wyatt. Thus armed comes into my forehead. Um, there or here um, locates himself, places himself, and here places his banner. Um, that word insignia is our word ensign comes from that. Um, and, or insignia, our word insignia comes from that also. She who teaches me, um, if anyone has taken French, that's ensigné in French. Um, it's with an E rather than an I. Um, she <coughs> who teaches us, actually, to love and to suffer. Um, and wishes that the great desire, um, the burning, um, reason, shame, and reverence um, reigns in, wishes that great desire and burning, um, reason, shame, and reverence should reign in, of our ardor um, uh, makes herself disdainful. Is that how you would? within herself, makes herself disdainful. Um, uh, wherefore, love um, fearfully flees to the heart, um, leaving all its um, banners. Oh, enterprise, of course, sorry. Yeah, not, not impresses, enterprise, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, and trembles and weeps. Um, uh, there it um, hides itself 
we, our English word is abscond, but that means is to get away in order to hide. There hides itself and no longer appears outside. Um, what can I do um, uh, fearing my love? My love is when love, my Lord is... is, is oh, my Lord fearing. So it's like ablative absolute. If not, um, in, if not um, with him, if not to stay with him until the last hour. Um, since uh, a good end makes the one who dies loving well. Um, so that's a pretty literal translation with some, some serious help there. Um, so thank you. Um, and what is um, somewhat ambiguous in the Petrarch is whether um, the loving there is loving her or um, showing faithfulness, which is how Wyatt translates it, to love the Lord. Um, but because it's loving, it seems slightly more like the object of the loving, um, whom is being, who is being loved well, um, is the lady, is the cruel fair, rather than the Lord that he's showing faithfulness to. Um, in Wyatt, it's a, the, the tendency is to be slightly the other way. That is, um, for good is the life ending faithfully when he says, and I'm staying faithful to my Lord. What may I do when my master feareth? But in the field with him to live and die. For good is the life ending faithfully. You can't say that you're faithful to your enemy. Um, and Wyatt wouldn't say that. You, have to be, you would be faithful to your master, whereas she's the enemy in the conceit. I'm using that word again by design so that you'll um, naturalize it in the conceit of the poem. Um, now Surrey gives his own translation which is, which is um, somewhat more like Petrarch than Wyatt's is. Um, Love that doth reign and live within my thought, which are the exact words that um, Petrarch uses, viva et, ren et, et renia. Love that doth reign and live within my thought, and built his seat within my captive breast, clad in the arms wherein with me he fought, oft in my face he doth his banner rest. Um, what Surrey, I think, is adding to that is the idea that love, hi, that's okay, um, is that love, here, take one of these, um, is that love has conquered him. Um, that is, um, it might be when, that he holds his great seat in my heart might make love a conqueror, that is, has, ta has taken over the citadel of my heart. But sorry, is pushing that. Um, the idea that love has, has conquered um, the speaker and um, now having taken over the speaker is going to go after the woman. Um, so love that doth reign and live within my thought and built his seat within my captive breast, clad in the arms wherein with me he fought, oft in my face he doth his banner rest. And what's that again? Blushing. Blushing. Good. Um, but she that taught me love and suffer pain, my doubtful hope, and eke, any, everyone know what eke means there? What is it, Barbara? Sorry. Also. Yeah, eke means also. Um, and eke, um, my hot desire, she that taught me 
to, with shamefast look, to shadow and refrain these things. Her smiling grace converteth straight to ire. And that's the octet. Now we get the turn, the sex, sextet, sestet. And coward love then to the heart apace taketh his flight where he doth lurk and plain, his purpose lost and dare not show his face. For my Lord's guilt, thus faultless bide I pain. Yet from my Lord shall not my foot remove Sweet is the death that taketh end by love. Um, so he's going to stay with his Lord, but it's a little bit because he is um, in, because love stands for the fact that he's in love with her. And um, both Wyatt and Surrey, but in somewhat different ways, and this is the only thing that um, I want to stress here, and then we'll leave this on it and its versions behind. But both Wyatt and Surrey, in somewhat different ways, are interested in um, a psychology, a psychological state of um, self-discrepancy. That is, generally we identify ourselves with our own desires. The simplest idea of, of who we are is um, that a lot of who we are can be determined by what we want. Um, a very simple way of saying this is to say that um, you know you know something about people from their tastes, um, and taste is um, one word for desire. So, um, who people are. is connected to what they want um, because who they are determines what they want. Um, and what becomes interesting is when you want things but don't want to want them. Um, or when your desire for something is a desire that perhaps you would rather not have. A desire that you feel um, anguished for having not because it can't be fulfilled, but because you don't want to have that desire. Um, that is a very familiar psychological state um, from anyone who's, who's ever tried to quit smoking will know that psychological state. Um, but it's a state essentially that forces and maybe is the main reason that we ever engage in self-reflection. That is, we think about who we are when we think about what we think about our desires. Um, we reflect on ourselves. We go more deeply into ourselves when we don't simply have a wish for something. Um, you're thirsty and you want a drink of water, so you have a drink of water. And there's nothing um, deep about being a person who wants to have a drink of water when she's thirsty. Um, but there is something that starts getting you to go deeply into um, yourself, into the heart's forest, to use um, Wyatt's term, um, when the fact that you want something is painful for you. It's not the fact that you can't have it. That, that I mean, that, that may be painful also. But it's the fact that you want it, that there's something about you where 
you feel discrepant from yourself. Um, standard emotional um, experiences where we are um, alert to that self-discrepancy within us are legion. We could include guilt or shame among them. Um, guilt because you've done something that you wanted to do um, but did, but now wished that you weren't the person who wanted to do that or wished that you hadn't been successful in doing what you tried to do. Um, shame, similar but not exactly the same thing. Remorse, contrition. Um, all of those are places where our relation to our own desires is a relation um, which, is, which is uncomfortable and um, where, think, where we start thinking about our relation to our own desires and then thinking about the way we're thinking about our relation to our own desires. So in this poem, the lady whom he loves is saying, you shouldn't love me. And that can only um, have force for him. He can only take that statement seriously if what? Yeah. If he owns it as an emotion that belongs to him. Um, yeah. The, the two translations talk about it differently. Uh, in the Surrey, he says faultless. Um, like, it's, mm -hmm. it's like, uh, it's, it, as it, it nice. literally does not belong to him. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Wyatt, he says, what may I do? Which is more helpless. Right. And that's actually closer to the Italian. To the Italian, yeah. Um, what can I do? Um, so what, what Surrey is trying to get is the idea that, it's, as, as, as Mac computers used to say, I don't think they do anymore, I think this was OS 9, was, it's not my fault. Does anyone remember that? Now, do you remember that? That's, uh, boy, does that ever fall flat. Um, way before Siri came around, um, Mac computers used to have a female voice that if you had the sound on when there was ever some kind of error and things didn't work, um, or, or a program would crash, the voice would say, I don't know why they, they synthesize such bad English, but it would, it would come out as saying, it's not my fault. And, um, that was like, you really didn't want to hear that. Um, yes, I know, they should have. Um, and she was still alive at the time. Um, do people know who she is? Gene Roddenberry's um, spouse who did the computer voice in Star Trek, the original Star Trek. Okay, now, now you've learned something in this course. Um, so, yeah. Um, but in, so in, in the Wyatt and in the original, it's what can I do? Um, but then the answer is I have, to, I have to be faithful for Wyatt or I have to keep loving for um, for Petrarch, I have to keep doing what I'm doing, even though it causes me so much pain. Um, but if the person, if someone says, "Don't love me," um, and that is that causes you pain, what does that prove about you? This is one of those incredible. I'm looking for incredibly. Yes! Yay! <laughs> yeah. If someone, if someone, if some schnook that you have no interest in, whatever, says, it's really important that you don't love me, what you say is, okay. Um, but if it's someone that you are in love with and whom you, who, who, whom you would do anything for, if they say, don't love me, then you're immediately caught in a trap, um, a psychological trap, um, not, not a trap of paradox, or the, though it can feel paradoxical, 
but it's the pain of rejection is um, to the extent that you suffer that pain really, I mean, again, just consult your own experiences. The pain of rejection, like all pain, is pain that on some level you don't want to have. Someone rejects you and that causes you pain, but who wants to feel pain? Um, and yet on some other level you do want to feel that pain, um, as we all know, um, because, because we will sometimes cultivate um, the pain of being rejected. Um, but the, in the most basic level, if you really feel pain when someone rejects you, you're, feel, you're having an experience you don't want to be having. Um, and yet, the reason you're having that experience is because you can't do, you want to do, you, you think of this person as having desires that matter to you and that you want to fulfill. And yet that desire is for you not to want to fulfill their desires. Um, so the pain of rejection is a pain of wanting to do what you don't want to do, not wanting to do what you do want to do. Um, but giving that person the authority that you give someone that you're in love with over your own emotion and then having them use that authority in a way um, that is destructive to your emotion and some part of you would be much happier not to love them. Um, some part of you would be much happier. I mean, just think of going off in a huff um, and saying, fine, I don't need you. Um, and that's rarely true if you go off in a huff. Um, but what you want, what you're telling yourself when you go off in a huff, is um, that person no longer matters to me. Um, because that's what you want. At least part of you wants that. So this is a particularly um, um, economical account of a kind of painful self-reflection, a kind of painful experience of self-reflection, where self-reflection itself comes from the fact that um, you are feeling a slave to your own desire. Instead of, instead of mastering desire, where the very idea of doing something is you desire to do it and you do it. Um, here, you desire something, but some part of you wishes you didn't. Or at least some part of you knows that you would be happier if you didn't have this desire. Um, and yet, you may not even desire not to have that desire, even though you know you'd be happier not to have it. You may not even desire not to have that desire, but why don't you desire not to have that desire? Because you can't desire anything. Because if you could desire not to have that desire, then you'd have some control over your desire, and you don't. So um, again, this shouldn't, this shouldn't sound like a paradox. It should sound like a psychological state that um, almost all human beings are familiar with sometime in their life, which is, I'm miserable, but I don't even wish that I weren't. Um, and, and if you think about it or if you wonder why don't I wish that I weren't miserable, um, it's partly because you're miserable because of your wishes. And um, if you wish that you weren't miserable, then those wishes wouldn't be making you so miserable. Um, yeah, Leah. No, oh, okay. Um, so for Wyatt, the way he's translating this is to think precisely about that experience of um, self-discrepancy, of not um, simply being in harmony 
with himself. And the reason that I think it works so well as a translation um, is that the difference, it's almost as though if you asked um, what the parallel in the literary world is to the erotic experience that he's having. The erotic experience that he's having is I'm in love with her and there's nothing I can do about it and it causes me pain and the reason it causes me pain is because um, simply having this desire is painful. Um, in the literary world, so in the, in the erotic world it's love is my master. Um, and we'll look at my galley charged with forgetfulness in, in a minute to see another example of that. Um, in the literary world, it's almost as though the answer is Petrarch is my master. That is, that in using Petrarch's poetry to express myself, what happens when I read him is that I have an experience which is the experience of great poetry. And that experience of great poetry is in some very deep way like the experience of love. Um, that's what would induce anyone, would induce someone, would induce anyone um, in love to write poetry. Um, thank you. The, the expressive need to write poetry when you're in love, which is something that is familiar to us as um, one hallmark of modern poetry from the troubadours on. You get it in ancient poetry too. Catullus is the famous example. Um, but one hallmark, one of Catullus's extremely famous two-line poem, um, do people know it is Odi et Amo? Um, anyone know this? It's, well, it's, it's this in a nutshell. It, those, two, those three words, the first three words of the poem are, I hate and I love. Um, Odi et amo. First time anything like that was ever written. Um, I hate and I love. And then he goes on, you ask, how can this be? I cannot answer you, but I will tell you that it's torture. Um, that's the whole poem. Um, two-line two line poem of Catullus's. Um, and that's sort of um, a good example of the need to express yourself in poetry when you are unhappy in love. Happy love poems are few and far between, or good happy love poems are few and far between. Um, really good sad love poems you can find everywhere, and a good thing too. Um, so if you ask again, why do poets go to poetry um, to express unhappy love, to express unhappiness in love? On some level, the answer has to be that the elusiveness of a poem, that a poem itself is something which feels like it's resolving an emotion or that it's offering a resolution to an emotion that instead it has the effect of intensifying. Let's say that that's a definition of a kind of poetry. Poetry that seems to be resolving an emotion um, or that you go to to resolve an emotion but that actually intensifies that emotion. Um, if that doesn't strike you immediately as, as a good, as, as a kind of poem that um, 
that you recognize, um, then think of sad songs that it's that you want to sing. Sing of song. Think of think of songs that um, just singing them um, somehow makes you happy and sad at the same time. Um, that idea, I think, is Wyatt's idea of poetry. And so by going to Petrarch and by essentially saying, I am faithful to his conception of love. I am faithful to a poem in which he says that he will love her forever. My her is a different her from Petrarch's her. Mine is alive and hers and his isn't, for example, um, because um, he's, uh, the, the, this was written um, a couple of decades earlier. Um, but in any case, um, in loving his poetry, loving that poetry is one reason that I would stay in love instead of finding some way not to be in love with her, because it gives a um, it has this strange, um, sad attractiveness that poetry has for Wyatt. And that sad attractiveness is something that he can't escape from. Um, it could explain why in They Flee From Me um, they turn away from him. Because for him, the better it is, the more longing the more needful or needy he will become. Why? Because he somehow needs this experience to be an experience of neediness. Um, that's what it means to be mastered by love, to need the experience of love, to be an experience of neediness. Auden has a famous couplet, um, which it's really worth thinking about and thinking about whether you agree with or not. If equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. So do you, are you guys familiar with the book of questions? This is, they used to sell this at when there were bookstores, um, which were like shops with bricks and windows, and you could see books there, and they had cash registers. Cash was the way we used to pay, pay for things. Um, uh, Often at the checkout, um, right, at the, right at the cash register, there was this little book that people would buy on impulse called the Book of Questions. And what you would do is you'd be waiting to pay, and you'd flip it open and it would ask you all sorts of questions that you were supposed to think, oh, that's deep, I wonder. Um, and um, no, no, that, that, that's a parody of the book of questions. No, it's like, what, what was that movie that came out a year ago where you could be, you get a million dollars for pushing a button if someone in the world dies and you don't know? Oh, um, it, it was called The Box, yeah. Um, so they would ask questions like that. Um, that's not a hard one, I hope, for anyone. Um, but, um, or if you could... I don't know that the questions were all too stupid. But a really interesting question might be something like, um, if you were involved with someone and um, the, um, you didn't love each other equally because people never do, would you like to be the one who was more loving or more beloved? Um, the one who, who cared more um, or the one who cared less? And... Um, you could see that that would, I, th I hope you could see that that would be a hard question. And also that you might want to give one answer, but if you were honest with yourself, maybe you'd give the other answer. 
um, or you might wonder why, whether you want to give the answer you would want to give for the right reasons, and whether you really meant the answer that you meant. So this is left as an after-class exercise for you to decide, do you want to be the more loving one? If equal love there cannot be, um, would you like to be the more loving one? The answer in Wyatt is clearly he wants to be the more loving one. Um, we could even go further and say that in Wyatt, even if equal love there could be, he would rather be the more loving one. Because um, part of what makes love feel deep is an experience of, um, of failure, of faltering, of pain, of, of um, sadness. Um, sadness, in some sense, for why it should be part of the experience. And yet, who wants to be sad? Um, well, he does psychologically, even though the definition, you could almost say, of desire is wanting something that will make you less sad. Um, it's almost a, a, um, a definitional truth that we desire that which will increase our sum of happiness or decrease our sum of misery. Um, that's what desire always proposes to itself in desiring something. Um, desire always wants to come to an end. I want this thing which the very getting of it will mean that I no longer want it. And that's what it means to desire something. Um, if you're hungry, you desire to eat, which means in some sense that you're desiring not to be hungry. Um, to desire not to be hungry um, is the same thing as to desire to eat um, for all practical purposes. Um, but not when it comes to love, at least not for Wyatt. Um, Wyatt likes the desiring, even though he dislikes it. And that throws him upon self-reflection. And what I think is that it also throws him upon an idea of the extent to which um, loving poetry is also loving the desire for something that can't be alleviated. Um, loving poetry is loving the experience of sadness which poetry somehow captures, an experience of sadness which is something different from an experience of wanting to get over sadness. So if we define sadness, and this isn't a, a straightforward definition at all, but if you were to define sadness as um, the desire for that thing which will um, now not make you sad, um, I'm sad because I'm in Waltham and not in San Francisco, um, well, if I were in San Francisco, that would be great. Um, and therefore, sadness is a desire for the, for the way things are to be different, we could say. But not for Wyatt and not for people who want to be reading sad poetry or singing sad songs or whatever. Um, then sadness is somehow a desire to stay sad. And um, that is that gets you deep into the heart's forest um, when you're in that situation. So that um, Wyatt picks Petrarch, Wyatt picks um, a poem that he loves to rewrite, because to rewrite a poem is to be acting 
out of the experience that the poet that the poem creates for you but not acting in such a way as to end that experience but to keep it going and translation for why it is a really powerful way of doing that um your hand was up this time right no, no. okay i'm just so wrong yeah um, emily i have a question is it sort of unusual that like he refers to love as like masculine i mean obviously i know cuz he's also talking about like she this woman but that seems different than some of the other love poems we read where it was it's more feminine. Um, what are you thinking of as a poem where love is feminine? Um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly. Or is it usually masculine? Well, love in, in Petrarch and in Wyatt is eros. That is Cupid the adult, not Cupid the child. Mm -hmm. um, so Cupid the child is pure mischief maker, and um, it's all really fun, and, and we get comedy. Um, Cupid the adult is um, essentially um, can be a cruel master. And um, it's, uh, it's fairly conventional, um, even through the 20th century, to refer to love as male that way. Um, Yeats talks about love hiding his face um, amid the stars. And the pronoun that he uses is his face. Um, love hid his face amid the stars. Well, it's no. It it actually has to be put the other way that that Cupid or Eros. Generally, the the convention is to talk about Cupid the child and Eros the adult, um, same son of Venus in both cases. Um, but the basic view is that um, allegorizing love, which is what we're talking about, that is that that when there are two people, there's a third entity there also love, at least in allegorical um, descriptions of these things. Do people know what allegory is? We will um, by the end of the term, but um, Gabrielle, can you define it? You were nodding. Um, is, I always get this mixed up, but usually an allegory is like a story that has um, characters that reference other things but will not be called that specific thing. Right. So can you give an example? Um, I think Aesop's fables are allegories? Like yeah, they're, they're sometimes treated as allegories. Okay, because I mean, like, I learned that, like, the animals would represent, like, certain, um, like, human characteristics. Yeah, so like a fox is, almost, yeah. Like the fox is wit or cleverness right. and, and things like that. So they'll never be called that, but that's who what they're representing, even though it's a person or a thing or an animal. Yeah. So sometimes um, they will be called that. So there's a famous allegory. This is this is a couple of centuries later, but a famous allegory called Pilgrim's Progress, which is um, both an amazing piece of writing, but also as allegory, it is sublimely clear. Um, so in Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim is a man named Christian, and he wishes to get to a city called the Heavenly City. Um, and he wonders how to get there, and um, he finds that it's actually a difficult journey, this pilgrimage that Christian wants to undertake to the heavenly city. Um, and he gets advice from friends. One of his friends is called Mr. Worldly Wise. And Mr. Worldly Wise basically says, it's really not worth the trouble to take this trip um, what you should be doing is making a lot of money and giving and making yourself comfortable. Um, as he as he tries to head for the heavenly city, he passes um, a crowd of people, all of whom seem very eager for something, and they're at a fair, 
um, where things are being bought and sold. Um, and the name of this fair is Vanity Fair. And in Vanity Fair, um, it turns out that they are spending lots of money and lots of time trading in worthless trinkets. Um, luckily, Christian doesn't um, get delayed very long at Vanity Fair. But then he starts feeling really blue, and he passes a place called the Slough of Despond, um, where um, various depressed people are trying to drown themselves. It's kind of quick. Sorry? I said the doldrums. The doldrums, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so it goes. And um, the idea is there's no moment in, um, actually, there are many moments, but um, on your first reading, you'll think there's no moment where you don't understand very obviously what's going on here. Um, or, or earlier, more <coughs> contemporary with Wyatt, there's a play called Everyman. Um, the main character is named Everyman. <laughs> um, and um, he has certain friends whose name, who, who as a collection are called the Seven Deadly Sins. <coughs> um, and they have names like Sloth and, and um, Anger. And you'll see a lot of this in Spencer. And they advise him to um, live for the moment. Um, but then there are also another seven characters who are the seven virtues. Um, the four cardinal and the three theological virtues. And they give him really good advice. Um, a, a character named Faith says, you should really be faithful. Uh, a character named Hope says, you must not give up hope, um, etc. So all of these are allegorical representations of a situation that a person finds themselves in. We don't much have a taste for allegory um, in the 21st century. Um, or think we don't. And the reason we don't is that, um, in general, we think, why have these um, creaky, um, wooden, unrealistic characters um, and unrealistic situations um, just, just laying out what the situation is? You know, it's like when you go to um, uh, museums of the American Revolution, of which there's one in Lexington, um, and um, you see the political cartoons of the 18th century. And if you like read Wasserman and the Boston Globe, you know, he's not very clever, but um, the political cartoon makes sense. If you read 18th century political cartoons, it will be like England is saying, there, there's a big England saying, we will not let the colonies have any freedom. And various people in the colonies are saying, no, we will assert our rights. And they'll just have little <laughs> bubbles coming from their mouths. And we're supposed to think, oh, how clever. Um, and that's what allegory will sometimes feel like. Yeah. Like, couldn't you say that, like, the Chronicles of Narnia, for example, I feel like Aslan would be, a, would be an allegory yes. for Jesus? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so like we do have it today, it's just more subtle. Yeah, and, and the Chronicles of the Chrono what calls Narnia. Um I you just can't not do it. Um uh, is fairly overt and it's also for children. Um but the idea No, it it but it is more subtle. I mean most children don't quite get that Aslan is Christ, but they know they really like Aslan and then Lewis's hope is that later they'll say, but he's real, and we call him Christ. Um, and then the, ta the, the stone tables that he sacrificed on are the Ten Commandments and the tables of the law and, and so on. Um, so it can be explained later. But yeah, it's a much more interesting story. 
than um, the story of Pilgrim's Progress might seem at first, or the story of every man might seem at first. But there's still the question, I mean, actually to give, to tell you where I think allegory works really well now, um, this is morphing into a, a different class, but where I think it works really well is in Philip Pullman in the His Arc Materials trilogy, um, where the demons um, are in some sense allegories of their humans. Um, and you can tell, how many people have read any of, of that? So, you know, so that um, as humans settle, what happens is when humans hit puberty, their demons become permanent instead of being shape-shifting all the time. And you can tell what kind of person they are by the, by the animal that's associated with them. So servants always have dog demons, for example, because they're loyal and obedient um, and so forth. And Mrs. Coulter, um, Nicole Kidman, um, <laughs> it's a terrible movie, but, uh, but great books. Um, but Nicole Kidman is perfect as Mrs. Coulter. Mrs. Coulter, and Daniel Craig is perfect as Azrael. Um, Mrs. Coulter has the really um, clever and terrible and scary golden monkey. Um, and in some sense, those are, those are allegorical. Um, but the thing about allegory is that, and I'm partly going into this at such length because it's going to be an issue when we get to the Fairy Queen, when we get to Spencer. The thing about allegory is that somehow allegory must always mean, when it's good, must always mean something like self-conflict. Um, if you interact with some allegorical character who represents a part of you, the crucial thing is that that allegorical character represents a part of you. Not all of you isn't you, but is something within you. Um, something, something you could be, or something, um, some impulse within yourself that you may listen to. And so when you have allegorical characters like greed or sloth or whatever, um, you know, sloth saying, oh, come on, it would just be so nice um, to go back to sleep. Or in Spencer, there's a character named Despair um, who tells the, um, the main character of book one of the Fairy Queen, um, gives him reasons to despair and basically says, you know, you, if you were to despair now and give up, you could rest. You could just give up everything and it would just be so sweet to sink into rest and into the profound rest of death. So despair is encouraging suicide in the main character um, by offering something that the main character partly wants. Um, and that makes a kind of sense, that it's something the main character wants to resist, but also something the main character partly wants. Um, and under those conditions, um, allegorical characters are in a lot of ways like um, buddies in buddy movies, people who are tempting you to one or another way of seeing the world who are tempting the main character into one or another way of seeing the world, or encouraging in the main character one or another way of seeing the world. Um, and they are all appealing to aspects of the main character. And what we can do is just bracket that phrase out. So instead of saying they are all appealing to aspects of the main character, Nothing is lost, really, if we say they all are aspects of the main character, or they all represent aspects of the main character. Um, so 
that is a kind of sense-making way of talking about allegory, rather than allegory as being kind of a dumbo um, illustration of, um, of the interaction of abstractions. Um, everyone know who Edward Gorey is? No, you don't, really? Um, Barbara can, sorry? Should I? Yes, you should. Um, you really should. G-O-R-E-Y, Edward Gorey. He was actually, do you know who John? Sorry? No, not at all like Richard Scarry. Um, do people know who John Ashbery is? The poet, the great, maybe the greatest living um, American poet. Um, well, he and Edward Gorey were roommates, which is an interesting. We're not poets. We're fact. here for funsies. Yeah. No, I figured. <coughs> Who's Edward Gorey, Barbara? Um, he's a illustrator. Drader. Um, it's like dark. Yeah. Yeah, um, he has an alphabet book called Amphigory. Actually, you've seen him. If you ever watch Mystery on PBS, he did the credits. Um, you know, with the with the cornice falling off the building and killing someone, and then there's the oh sound. Um, and he's also done a lot of he's he um, did a lot of children's books. Um, and yeah, he's he's uh, um, not unlike Morris Sendak in in his kind of creepy, gruesome. Um, illustrations and writing. Um, so there's a book called Amphigory. There's a book called Amphigory too. Anyhow, if, if uh, you you would recognize, I keep imagining that I can get this up, and it's worth doing. Actually, if I can find this one, it'll be really worth doing. But that's a big one, right? Control Alt Delete. Um, let's tell you what's here before. So if I can find this one, which I probably won't be, but he has a great one, which is um, there's a woman on a bicycle riding a tightrope holding an umbrella, um, and the tightrope is over um, to is over is suspended over a canyon, um, and the caption is something like um, Prudence riding the bicycle of um, of wisdom on the tightrope of faith over the canyon of despair holding the umbrella of, um, I don't even know anymore. I forget which, which abstractions we, ha we haven't talked about yet. Um, and the point is, why that picture? What's the point of that structure of these abstractions, that it's a woman on a bicycle, on a tightrope, over a canyon, holding an umbrella? What does that teach you, um, that it's structured that way? And the idea of allegory is it's supposed to teach you something, that if you hang out with sloth, and sloth is your buddy, and you're slothful, and sloth is sloth, slothful, and the two of you are slothful, um, then when you and sloth want to defend yourselves against um, Satan, um, you'll try to wake Sloth up and say, Satan is coming, we have to defend ourselves or we're in really trouble, and Sloth will go back to sleep. Um, and then you'll realize it was a real mistake to put your trust in Sloth, um, because when push comes to shove, Sloth isn't there helping you. Um, or if you make friends with Lust, um, what'll happen is you'll be interested in someone, but so will Lust, um, and that'll be a bad thing. So in all those cases, the, what's bad about um, the characteristic turns out to be bad 
um, in real life also. Um, are you even getting anything there? No. So it's on PC. Okay. So let's just see what they. Had. So that this is a typical gory. Um, does that look familiar to people? That's a typical yeah. gory illustration. Like, oh, that, what is that alphabet? Is it it's a bunch of kids Chinese. that die in different ways? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then I know. Um, it looks like a Blake poem. Bees. Yeah. <laughs> bees for basil, assorted, by, assaulted by bears. Um, so let's just see if I can find what it's allegorical. Is, his, is Gory really his birth name, or is that yes? Blood? And you could there's a museum. He lived on Cape Cod um, in Sandwich, I think. And there's a museum. Uh, uh, the house that he lived in has now become a very. This is the bicycle. Oh, where is it? Right there. It's on the top of page. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes, this is the one. Oh, good. Innocence on the bicycle of propriety, carrying the urn of reputation safely over the abyss of indiscretion. <laughs> um, so that's a parody of um, I guess, yeah. So that's a anyhow, that's a parody of how of how allegory works. And it's like what's ridiculous about it, on the one hand you can make sense of it, which is that it's hard to, um, um, well, can you make sense of it? <laughs> the bicycle of propriety. Why would propriety be a bicycle? Um, if you could say something like uh, the bicycle of, um, of carefulness, it would make sense because you have to be careful to ride a bike. But why the bicycle of propriety? Why is reputation in an urn? Yeah. Oh, about the propriety and the bicycle thing, is it kind of because, like, you can get where you're going on a bicycle, but it's going to take you a lot longer than if you, like, drove a car or, like, so, like, with, when you're trying to, like, like observe propriety, like, you'll probably get where you're going, but it's going to take ten times longer because you have to, like, watch what you say and watch what you do and, like, watch who you talk to, and it's, like, very complicated for no reason. Okay, yeah, the, the, exactly. Um, yeah, Leah. Also, I mean, the, ideally we're maintaining innocence. Yes. I mean, innocence would like to be maintained, but there's no way to maintain your innocence if you're trying to keep your reputation by following society, and if you screw it up, you're going to fall into a discretion. Right. Good. Yeah. And there's a, I think it's like, reputation takes a long time to build, then seconds to destroy, and I feel like that's a literal, like, interpretation of that. She could just fall off, and then her reputation is gone. But why an urn? Because it's fragile, come fragile. Yeah, because it's like it's difficult to carry. So because you're like, especially when you're trying to get across a tightrope on a bicycle, um, it's yeah. very difficult to to carry your reputation around. You have to be constantly aware of it. And yeah, the thing is, it's attached to two like little plants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't look really sturdy. No, that's right. <laughs> especially if the urn is heavy. Yeah. Another reason for the urn, maybe because it's already dead, so it's yeah. not really changeable anymore. So uh -huh. once it falls, so once it changes or falls, then it's you know gone. Yeah. Um, okay. So See, that's why there's a black cloud. It's the, it's the scattered dust of other people's reputations. <laughs> so what we're learning here is that when you get an allegory that doesn't quite make sense, you can interpret.
and uh, the interpretations are um, probably reflections of the interpreter's cleverness um, rather than the meaningfulness of an allegory. There's always something, the, allegories generally strike us as artificial. Um, and the point is there's no, they're a little bit like metaphysical poems, which is to say there's no real life situation where you would say, you know what it's like to try and maintain your reputation when there's a lot of indiscretion in the world. Well, you know what it's like to try to ride a bicycle on a tightrope over an abyss carrying in an urn. That's just, that's, you know, that's, that's basically what we're confronted with every day. So just think of that feeling. Um, and, and here's a good description of it. Um, so that's what, how, how allegory feels artificial to us. For some ages, they're, they're, um, the cleverness is a whole lot of fun, and um, putting allegories together is often like putting puzzles together. In other ages and for other sensibilities, um, allegory just feels like um, completely willful and artificial um, uh, arrangements of elements in a way that, has, that doesn't feel at all like real life. But the thing about the allegory of love is that what Petrarch and what Wyatt and what Sari are saying is that there is a sense in which it does feel like real life. It feels like there is this experience which is love. And love is um, always going to love the person that you love. Love somehow represents you and how you feel about that person. And yet love also represents something that's estranged from you. That um, love is, there, there are a lot of, you, you may have to look at a lot of posts to see this sort of general feeling about it. But um, do you guys know who Talking Heads are? The band, yeah. How many people know? All right, as many people as knew who Corey were. Um, um, no, actually, I'm thinking of Tom Tom Club. Do you know who Tom Tom Club are? The Talking Heads without David Byrne. Um, so they, there's a there's a great song by Tom Tom Club um, about love called Love Comes to Town, and. Um, it's, and love is approaching, love is coming to my building, love is coming over, um, and it's all really great. And um, the thing is that if you allegorize love, forget Eros, forget Cupid now, just say that love becomes a person in your life. Um, when, when that's a happy experience, that love is in your life, when that's a happy experience, then love is like the person you love. If you say, God, I have love in my life, here you are, then... Um, then simply treating love as pers personified, my love, you are my love, with you I have love in my life. That doesn't feel like allegory because there are only two people there, you and the person you love, whom you call love. Um, if, on the other hand, things go sour, then what you're going to feel is that somehow um, there is this thing that loves, which is sort of you and sort of the other person and also sort of neither. And um, that's not an actual experience. You don't actually say, oh no, love is living and reigning in my thought and being cruel to me and doing all these things. But you might feel 
that there's an imaginary version of the person you love who would want you to love them and who would want love and who would stand for the fact of love. And then there's the real person you love who doesn't love you back. And then you would feel maybe that there was this presence or something that you wish were a presence, that you wish were a human presence. And then the desire to allegorize that person, to say, but there is love here. I have this companion, love. Um, and I can express myself to love and say how much I love the person who doesn't love me back. There's someone to listen to me. There's someone to um, hear me. There's someone who gets what I'm saying. Um, you'll see that over and over again in allegories of love. And um, I think that what they stand for is a desire, is the reader of a poem when the person you really want to be reading the poem doesn't care about it. But somehow there's something that ratifies what you're saying in that poem. And often that, that implied reader gets allegorized as love. Um, love for whom you're writing, um, in loyalty to which you're writing. Um, this is, it's a really hard thing to say right, um, and you probably need to uh, read a lot of poems to start feeling um, what I'm meaning. But let's look at, um, can you read 189? Yeah. You guys want me to send you the link for this? Um, no, I'm going to have to log in to do that. Um, okay, Innocence on the Bicycle of Propriety, Carrying Your Own Reputation Safely Over the Abyss of Indiscretion. We can figure that out. Um, okay, yes. Passa la nave mia, colma d'oblio per aspro mare, a mezzanotte il verno, entra scilla e caribdi, e dal governo si era il Signore, anzi il mico mio. A ciascun remo un penser pronto e rio che la tempesta e il fin par cavi a scherno. La vela rompe un vento umido eterno di sospiri, di speranze e di designo. Pioggia di lagrimar, nebbia di sdegni, bagna e rallenta le già stanche sarte che son d'error con ignoranza torta. Cellanti duo mei dolci usati segni, morta fra l'onde e la ragion e l'arte, tal che incomincio a desperar del porto. Thank you. <laughs> um, do you want to do a little translation of it? Yeah, does everyone know what Sol and Charybdis are? Odysseus. It's, yeah, Odysseus sails his ship between the rocks of Scylla and Charybdis. If he goes too close to either side, they'll be destroyed. Actually, he goes around, but that's the idea. Yeah. And at the helm sits the Lord, or rather my enemy. At every oar, a, a thought which is eager 
and evil that the tempest that the temp that the tempest and the end of the tempest or the end has nothing but scorn the sail is torn by, by a humid wind humid and eternal wind of sighs of hope and of desire a rain of tears a fog of disdain of drowns or drenches and slackens the already weakened uh, shrouds, the sail, which are woven of error and ignorance. Uh, they are hiding my two usual, my, my two usual guiding lights or my, my signs. Uh, dead from dead in, among the waves are reason and art, such that I begin to despair of making court. Great, thank you. <laughs> Pretty good. Um, art there, I think, means um, skill. That is, um, both reason and, and, and sailorly skill are drowned um, in the waves. Um, so um, here's Wyatt's translation, which Again, he's, what he's so interested in here is that love is the um, master of the ship. Um, my galley, charged with forgetfulness, through sharp seas in winter nights doth pass, tween rock and rock, that is still in Curtis, tween rock and rock, and eke mine enemy, alas, that is my lord, steereth with cruelness. Um, notice those rhymes again, forgetfulness and cruelness. And every oar a thought in readiness, as though the death, as though the death were light in such a case. <clears throat> An endless wind doth tear the sail apace of forced sighs and trusty fearfulness. A rain of tears, a cloud of dark disdain hath done the wearied cords great hindrance, wreathed with error and eke with ignorance. The stars be hid that led me to this pain. Drowned is reason that should me consort, and I remain despairing of the port." Um, so he's miserable. Um, love has taken over. Um, the lady is full of disdain for him, um, and um, he's all alone. What do you think forgetfulness means there? Um, I think that's the word that in a sense is the most striking one in the poem. Um, oblio in Italian. Um, my ship passes um, laden with, with obliviousness or oblivion. Yeah, Gabriel. It's almost like he knew that she was going to reject him either from his own past experiences or someone else told him about their experience with, him, with her and he charged forth regardless of the fact that he knew that he'd probably not win her over. Okay, so charge it here means laden down. Um, like when you, when a battery is charged it means it's full of. Um, and so it's not charging like on a, like um, up a hill. Um, it's charged as in um, um, filled to capacity um, with, with forgetfulness. Um, so maybe it's that he forgot that he shouldn't be going after her 
but we can see that some of the past of this poem is that he's experienced um, the cloud of her dark disdain, Nebia Dizdeni, um, fog or cloud of disdain. Yeah, Gabriel. Well, in the Italian version, at least, with using oblivion, it might be like he knows, like, he's in the middle of this storm of, like, her disdain and, you know, her scorn and everything like that, but love is so all consumed with her that he's that it's like love is oblivious of these things like using the metaphor that's yeah. set up it's like he's a sailor on a ship that sees everything that's going on that they're like about to dash themselves between one rock or the other and that they're like driving towards something that doesn't or like her that doesn't even want this but love is completely oblivious to the fact it's like love sees like you know no rocks and smooth sailing mm -hmm. and doesn't mind that there's no stars to guide it. Like, love is just completely undeterred and almost, like, unknowing of all of these issues. Yeah. And so it won't see reason. Like, that's why it won't give up because it doesn't, it doesn't understand everything that's happening. It's just oblivious. Okay, good. Um, Omri, were you going to say something? I mean, pretty much in the uh, same line, the line that says, uh, that is my lord steereth with cruelness. It's kind of like the same idea that Love is, it, he may be on the ship, but Love is the one at the helm, is steering it past all these things, and it's torturing him at the same time as, I mean, I, it seems like he wants it, but at the same time it's torturing, like, some, same kind of theme that we were talking about the whole time. Okay. Um, George. And I get the forgetfulness maybe that he's been this way before, mm -hmm. uh, but he still can't, doing it, can't stop doing it again. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just have a question about the word consort or consort. Yeah. Because if reason is consort, then it's like almost a type of relationship mm -hmm. or like marriage. But if it's the reason just consorts with him, I, I mean, I just don't know how you would read that word. Um, consort there would mean um, uh, it's it, the distinction that we make between ooh, you know, the the sort of es consort is escort, meaning is not. Uh, nearly as available um, then as it would be now. Um, it would be the person who appropriately would go with him. Um, and marriage would be such an appropriate um, connection, although it doesn't have to be marriage. Um, but I think there's, that um, there's, a, there's a range of meanings, but not so wide a range as to make it ambiguous. Um, reason should really be loyal to him, um, should be his partner in this, maybe should be his spouse in this. Um, so but he was drowned by love. Yeah, um, reason is drowned. Yeah, in okay. love. I mean, that's that's not hard allegorically um, to to understand. Um, the I would suggest that um, we let forgetfulness be as 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 hard to understand as it is. That is, we can give interpretations of it and try to um, um, paraphrase it in a way where we could say, okay, he's, he's forgetful of um, the impossibility of a relationship like this. Or I think probably it's a little bit more that he's forgotten. That is, that um, he, is, he is completely hidden in the mists of not his forgetfulness, but the world's forgetfulness, her forgetfulness of him. He has become a person um, 
lost in oblivion. Um, the line, a similar line in Paradise Lost is, um, deep in dark oblivion, let them dwell, is what Raphael says about the fallen <laughs> angels. Yeah. But then how does that forgetfulness lead to his, his downfall? Um, so it's that he's, so if you put it in the, the they flee from me structure, um, it's that they now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger. So it's being forgotten by the other person um, that, that might give you some sense of what the forgetfulness is here. Yeah? But forgetfulness isn't transitive as like a, I mean, you can't really have a transitive yeah. adjective anyway, but right. if it could be, it wouldn't be. Forgetfulness is something that one owns of oneself. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, was it different then, or is it just? No, I think, and I think that's one reason okay. to let the word maintain some of its um, really, really powerful obscurity here. Um, that is, it's obscure in a way that's appropriate to the obscurity um, that the poem is about. Um, and in other words, don't trans don't translate it into the word obscurity as you might be tempted to. Um, it's not, oh, I'm so obscure now. It's that um, there's something which is gone, gone forever, is forgotten, um, is as gone as though it never existed, and yet I'm there in that place. Um, and if that doesn't quite make sense, nevertheless, that's the way it is. Again, a way you can see the difference between Wyatt and Petrarch. These are really subtle things, so if... if um, if I'm not making myself clear, I forgive myself. And if to you it seems like, what's he talking about? Um, these things are very subtle. This is probably the subtlest poetry we'll do all, all semester. Um, and it takes a while. So I'm, I'm just hoping there's, there's at least the thinnest end of the wedge um, coming in here. But um, here's the difference, again, between, uh, between the Italian and Wyatt's translation. How many stars in the Italian? Do you remember? <laughs> Victory, yes. How many, Gabriel? Two. This two stars. Um, that is um, hidden the two, um, hidden the two, to me, sweet, what is it, uh, used signs? Yeah, so the so the customary two signs, yeah. Um, so hidden to me are the two customary signs, two customary sweet signs, um, not stars. But in Petrarch's conceit, we would understand them to be stars because sailors navigate by stars. But um, by not even calling them stars, um, and he doesn't know, um, by not even calling them stars, um, it's clear what he means, right? What does he mean? Her eyes, yeah. Um, she's hiding her face from me. I can't see the two eyes that are usually what allow me to navigate through the shoals of this world and the shoals of love. Those are hidden from me. Um, Wyatt doesn't say to. He says, the stars be hid that led me to this pain. And um, if he's expecting you to compare this with the original, then you can see his translation as, as an interpretation which gets something right about the original. Sailors sail by signs. The sweet signs, are, the two sweet signs are missing. Obviously, we're supposed to understand them to be stars. 
why its translation helps us to understand them to be stars. That's one um, possible context for the poem. But the other is that for Petrarch, what becomes a very elaborate conceit, which ends with the fact that he can't see the lady's eyes, in Wyatt, the lady is much more disappeared from his world than in Petrarch. Um, so sufficiently disappeared that it's not an elaborate conceit where you picture her face or at least picture her two eyes shining at him and now not shining at him but somewhere there behind the clouds. Now it's a conceit that's become unmoored. So it's simply the stars are gone. Whatever brought me here, those stars are gone and, my, and I'm entirely in this region of forgetfulness. So I think that what you have in Wyatt, let me just try to put it this, this way. What you have in Wyatt is someone who is completely um, friendless after erotic um, um, collapse, after erotic loss and despair. Um, and the friend that he has is in some sense his poems, his writing poetry. Um, that's what he can do. Um, there's nothing else for him. There's no one else for him. Um, again, think of Whoso List to Hunt, where um, he says, yeah, you can go after her. Who, who is he addressing? I can't do it anymore. Um, so there's some addressee of the poem that is only the poem itself, um, which is a kind, the kind of poem he writes, which is not an addressee to a real person, but an addressee to... Um, the situation of the world in which this poem is engaged in its expressivity. And Wyatt will call that figure love. Um, I'm here all alone with love. Um, there's a reason to speak, which is to speak to love. Um, but it's not speaking to someone else. Um, so he has no friends, but his only friend is his own friendlessness, and that's who he's talking to. I know it's a weird way of putting it, but allegory is weird. Um, but it does connect with um, certain great depths of human experience, especially experience of self-division, of um, experiencing yourself partly um, from the outside. Um, experiencing the outsiderness of yourself might be another way of putting it. That doesn't sound like it's the same thing, but I really think it is. That you're outside your own life. And um, love stands for, friendless love stands for the way you are outside your own life in the um, laments that Wyatt is producing. Okay, sorry, we did one sorry poem, so we're still in some official way on track. Uh, we will do a lot more sorry on Wednesday. Uh huh. If he was a court poet, wouldn't the king have read?